we have to see our fight in the context of corporate rule um, and that we have a common enemy. So it's not just some religious people. It's not personal animus against women. It's big capital that wants these laws to expand the economy. Um, so our strategy needs to match what we're facing. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hello and welcome to tonight's event, Abortion is One in the Streets, the Past, Present, and Future of the Fight for Reproductive Freedom. My name is Lauren Bianchi. I'm an activist and teacher based in Chicago and a member of Chicago for Abortion Rights. I'm incredibly excited to be moderating our discussion, bringing together three abortion activists who are doing vital work and have a ton of experience and important perspectives to offer. Right now, all eyes are on Texas, where the state legislature has passed a devastating six-week abortion ban. The Republicans see Texas as a warm-up for the scheduled Supreme Court hearing of Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, a case that prompted Mississippi's attorney general to ask the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. By taking this case, the court will be revisiting nearly 50 years of precedent that has protected people's access to safe, legal abortion. In 1973, the landmark Supreme Court ruling in Roe v. Wade legalized abortion in the United States. But legal abortion was not simply handed down by the courts. It was won in the streets through years of grassroots mobilization and organizing led by activists during the women's liberation movement. Today's abortion movement faces a crisis decades in the making, and this history, as well as recent abortion rights victories globally, can shed light on what it will take to turn back the bans. So with that, I'm so excited to introduce our first speaker, who is Jenny Brown. Jenny Brown was a leader in the fight to get the morning after pill over the counter in the U.S. and a plaintiff in the winning lawsuit. She is co-author of the Red Stockings book, Women's Liberation and National Healthcare, Confronting the Myth of America. While editor at Labor Notes Magazine, she co-authored How to Jumpstart Your Union, Lessons from the Chicago Teachers. She writes, teaches, and organizes with the feminist group National Women's Liberation and is the author of Birth Strike, The Hidden Fight Over Women's Work. So whenever you're ready, Jenny, take it away. Thanks. Thanks, Lauren. And it's great to see everybody. Um, so I wanted to go into um, a little bit into the history of abortion in the United States from, and there's a lot of things that I think it can tell us. Um, for the first hundred years of the country's existence, abortion was essentially legal. Um, it was legal until what they call quickening, which is when you can feel the fetus move. And um, basically there were some laws, but they were basically to punish people who had uh, killed somebody by giving them an abortion. Um, so. You know, we often hear abortion bans are to punish women for having sex. Um, and the history actually shows that it was abortion among married women that was the cause of the crackdown. They were accused of having smaller families, um, shirking their duties. Uh, and it was a decrease in the birth rate that resulted 
that really became uh, became the crisis that caused abortion to be made illegal in the United States in, in 1873. Um, and in particular, it was Protestants and Protestant doctors who were worried about being outnumbered by Catholic immigrants. So we can see this like immigration was a factor. Um, and a hundred years of illegal abortion and restrictions on contraception, both were basically banned in 1873. So, so we have a hundred years that follow that. And really the, the restrictions on contraception only finally fell in 1972, a year before, before the Roe decision, which, which legalized abortion. So, um, abortion and contraception have fallen and risen together in our history. Um, and then when the women's liberation movement took to the streets in 1968, they made abortion one of their big priorities. And they used a lot of effective tactics that I think are worth revisiting. Um, first, they did consciousness raising in which they compared their experiences. And they, they realized how many of them had been forced into back alley abortions or um, trying to get three psychiatrists to certify that they were crazy, all the different hoops that were um, that people faced when they were trying to get abortions. And um, so that allowed them to conceptualize abortion as rather than a personal crisis or, or you know, some personal mistake that they had made, conceptualize it as a political demand. Um, and then uh, that allowed them to think about, you know, what was being proposed at the time by well-meaning liberals, you know, oh, well, we'll make it legal for people who've been raped or whatever. Um, they realized that would not help most of the people that were, you know, that needed abortions. So, so they're, um, they made this, they made that into the demand of full repeal of all abortion laws. Um, so then they protested the reform hearings that were, uh, that basically were to ameliorate the law, but not get rid of it. Um, they, uh, they started their own hearings testifying about their illegal abortions. They, um, they sued to get rid of the laws. They had giant marches all over the country. There were abortion referral services for illegal abortions on every campus. Um, and then people were doing abortions themselves. Um, Jane being in Chicago being the most notable. Um, and Jane did a significant number of abortions, uh, 20,000 by one count. So, um, and this is also a moment when many movements are on the march, putting the establishment on its back foot. Um, you also had the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe with free abortion on demand. Um, you know, the U.S. was supposed to be all about freedom, but here we had hospital wards full of people who had had, had botched abortions and were dying. Um, and there in the, you know, behind the Iron Curtain, the terrible Iron Curtain, you had free abortions in hospitals. So there was Cold War competition was on our side. Um, and the other thing we had is that the Republican Party itself, in response to all this agitation, was actually split on abortion. Um, a large portion of it supported abortion rights, not because they wanted women to have rights, but they were freaked out about overpopulation, including the high birth rate in the United States. Um, and in fact, when when the um, all the agitation by the women's liberation movement, in, in which was focused in New York, actually won uh, 
a change in the law in 1970. Um, that was under a Republican governor. Immediately, the legislature the next year went back on their on their law, but uh, the Republican governor Nelson Rockefeller uh, vetoed the change, continuing um, uh, legal abortion in New York. Um, now, I should note that their freak out about overpopulation ended around the mid '70s. So this this is something that went from the '50s to the '70s. All this stuff about the population bomb and all that that as the birth rate dropped in the seventies, they stopped worrying about that. So what's going on now? I mean, more people think that abortion should be legal now, certainly than they did in 1970. Um, and more people think it should be legal for any reason than ha in any point in our history. We've had giant marches. People have protested in great numbers in 2013. They occupied the Texas Capitol for two days, right? Uh, during that period, Wendy Davis filibustered that abortion bill. So people are taking strong actions in the streets. Um, so why are we seeing these restrictions multiply? Um, I, I think it's two things. So the ruling class has more power because of the multiple assaults that we have on formal democracy, right? So gerrymandering throughout the South, leading to right-wing legislatures, the Supreme Court allowing voter suppression, unlimited money in politics, um, but also the establishment has more motivation to get rid of our rights. Um, and in researching my book, Birth Strike, and, and uh, both Red Stockings and National Women's Liberation, we, that was a collective effort to do this, um, we found that there's pretty much bipartisan agreement among the establishment that U.S. population needs to rise. Um, population growth has always been associated with economic growth. It's how corporate profits are made. And now there's kind of a, that there is a unity on that, but then there's sort of a split on the method. The Democrats have basically settled on immigration, which means that they're displacing the costs of raising people onto other countries, you know, Dominican Republic, Mexico, uh, China, all of those places um, where we have a lot of immigrants from. Um, and in the case of Republicans, they want more births through coercion, shaming, all these laws against uh, against abortion and, and uh, restricting contraception in the many ways they're trying to do that. And of course, getting rid of sex education. So um, before the pandemic, we had the lowest birth rate ever recorded in the U.S., and then it dropped even further. Um, so this is a very different situation from what we faced in the late 60s when the birth rate was still quite high and sort of the post-war baby boom. So um, faced with low birth rates, neither faction wants to spend much on childcare, paid leave, shorter work hours, health care, any of the things that would make it possible for us to have or kids or make it feasible for us. So, um, uh, you know, you see that even this ridiculous fight about 12 weeks of paid family leave. Um, so basically they're using the strategy of coercion to raise the birth rate. And, um, and, um, that doesn't mean that we can't win. It does mean that we need to understand what we're up against and it makes it more than urgent than ever to link up with the other fights against the owning class um, and that see 
that we're 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 up against capitalism itself, right? The feminist movement can't win these struggles separately from other movements, whether that be climate change or workers' rights or the fight for national health care or expanding democracy, um, racial justice. We have to see our fight in the context of corporate rule um, and that we have a common enemy. So it's not just some religious people. It's not personal animus against women. Um, it's big capital that wants these laws to expand the economy. Um, so our strategy needs to match what we're facing. Um, and I think this is a great opportunity for us to join up with the other currents in the movement that are fighting for more democracy and against all these common enemies that we have. Um, so we can go into that more, but I'll just say, you know, uniting to get rid of the filibuster rule is, is, is one way. So I think that's, that's all I have. Thank you so much, Jenny. So uh, I have several questions that I'll bring up later on in the discussion uh, for you. Um, so our next speaker is Yuvia Reito Del Rio Roca Perez. She's joining us from Mexico. Reito is an activist for abortion rights in Juarez, where the federal court recently decriminalized abortion under pressure from mass mobilizations of activists. Yes. <laughs> Hi. Hi, comrades. Uh, I'm not very fluent in English, so I wrote down my part and I'm going to read it. But just to tell you a little bit more, well, I have been working since 2006 uh, with the relatives of femicide victims here in Juarez. I lead a project called uh, Los Rostros del Feminicidio. We paint uh, in murals the faces of the femicide victims and disappeared women. Uh, since 2015, uh, we have uh, we have painted almost 30 murals. And in 2018, I started uh, involved in involving in in the movement for abortion rights here in Mexico. Um, on September 9th, uh, well, I like. Um, found uh, information in the media, and I'm going to read it and then try to explain a little bit of what was our experience here in, in Mexico and particularly here in Juarez and in the state of Chihuahua, which is one of the most uh, conservative in Mexico. So on, on September 9th, uh, 2021, Maria Versa wrote that um, Susana Dueñas, a woman who was in jail for an abortion, could hardly believe the news. Mexico Supreme Court had decided that abortion cannot be considered a crime. The 38-year-old woman from central Mexico had spent six and a half years in prison on just that charge. The court declared the invalidation of the Article 196 of the state of Coahuila that happened September 7. This article used to rule prison penalty to any women who voluntarily practiced an abortion or any person who helped her to do it. This action was against the right of women to decide in their own body. The Supreme Court stated that the pregnancy product deserves protection of the state that gradually increases as the pregnancy develops. That means that it's not the same 
I'm in a, a pregnancy of seven months that a product of 12 weeks. Um, however, it specifies that, that this protection must not ignore women's rights to reproductive freedom. Therefore, the plenary established that is unconstitutional to criminalize the voluntary interruption of pregnancy. The court ruled unanimously that parts of a law in the northern border of Coahuila criminalizing abortion were unconstitutional. The, the decision immediately compels judges across the nation to consider cases with that ruling in mind. And there are thousands of open cases in Mexico against women accused of illegal abortion. They are not in jail, but the cases are there. Paula Avila Guillén said to NBC News that Mexico's ruling is, a, is in stark con contrast to the law enacted last week in Texas that forbids women to terminate their pregnancy after six weeks without exceptions, not even in cases of rape. The human rights lawyer told uh, Noticias Telemundo, the Texas law is far, is far removed from what is happening in Argentina and Mexico and is closer to what is happening in El Salvador. In El Salvador, you can get uh, in jail uh, for 40 years if you get an abortion. The global campaign for the right to legal, safe and free abortion had its action day last September 28th, and women marched in Mexico, El Salvador, Chile, Peru, and Colombia. In Chile, women had a rally this last uh, September 28th. Uh, women had a rally in Plaza Italia. In Colombia, women marched to Plaza de Bolívar. This movement came from Argentina, where in August 8, 2018, um, the Congress reject the initiative to decriminalize abortion. In response to that, thousands, thousands of women marched across Latin America in September 28, 2018. Organizations there have fought for legal abortion, often wearing green scarves at protests, both to continue monitoring compliance with the law. Argentina became the largest Latin American nation to legalize elect elective abortion earlier this year, that was in January, with a law guaranteeing the procedure uh, to the 14 weeks of pregnancy, as well as beyond in cases of rape and, or when a woman's health is at risk. Government officials and women's group will be monitoring its full implementation despite opposition from some conservative and church groups. Uh, that I found this information in NBC, and this was uh, January 25th, 2021. The Argentine Catholic Church has repudiated the law, and conservative doctors and lawyers groups have urged resistance. Doctors and health professionals can claim conscientious objection to performing abortion, that means that uh, they can deny the medical attention because of their religious beliefs. That happens also, used to happen also here in Mexico. Uh, for example, last uh, October 3rd, conservative groups marched against the determination of the Supreme Court 
The Supreme Court declared on September 28th that doctors and other public services, health services, must provide medical attention to any woman who has an emergency related to a voluntary abor abortion. They cannot argue any conscientious objection. It means um, to deny medical attention, and this practice was against the human rights of women. This is this was very common here in Juarez, here in Mexico. I know a case here in Juarez um, that uh, a woman went to the general hospital here in Juarez, and she was bleeding, and they they made her say that she was voluntarily having an abortion and they uh, she can she didn't uh, receive the medical attention and the police came and took her to jail continues uh, countries where abortion is totally decriminalized are argentina uruguay cuba and mexico countries where abortion is still totally penalized is uh, are el salvador honduras and nicaragua According to the Center for Reproductive Rights, the Mexico decision recognizes that the Constitution protects the rights, the right to make decisions about reproductive autonomy and recognizes that not giving women the right to save on legal abortion is contrary to that right. Under the circumstances indicated by the court in previous sentences, the decision not only refers to abortion as a right of women and girls, but also of people with a gestational capacity. Well, in Mexico City, the first march that um, they, the, the comrades did there was in September 28, 2018, at the Mom Monument and ended in the Zócalo. Some of the organizations that marched were Instituto de Liderazgo Simón de Beauvoir, MexFam, Redefine y Paz, and students from UNAM and, and UAM. There were also marches in Toluca, Guadalajara, Morelos, Tepic, Oaxaca, Veracruz, Nuevo León, Guanajuato, Chihuahua City, and Juarez City, among others. To this date, there are four states in Mexico where abortion is not penalized. That states are Veracruz, Hidalgo, Oaxaca, and Coahuila. And Mexico City, of course. Well, in Mexico City, abort abortion is legal since April 2007. It means that all women have abortion health services for free. From 2007 to 2015, 38,000 women have traveled to Mexico City to get an abortion. According to the Center for Reproductive Rights, the Colombia court also to rule on abortion decriminalization. This decision set an historic precedent for the country and for the entire region. I mean, all Latin American. The Colombia lawsuit was filled by the Causa Justa movement of which the center is a member. The movement aims to eliminate abortion as a crime from the penal code and end the risk of criminal prosecution, prosecution and imprisonment. For example, this uh, woman, Sara Dueñas, she was in jail for six years. She was from, from one of the most conservative states in Mexico, from Guanajuato, which is like very similar to Chihuahua. I mean, people uh, 
used to, I mean, people vote for the right-wing party there, uh, also in Nuevo León and in uh, in the state of Chihuahua. Uh, the decriminalization of abortion is a necessary advancement for women's rights and an essential step toward the provision for abortion in safe conditions. Mexico must now take the step, take the next step and enact laws and policies to legalize abortion services based on this historic ruling. These are changes, uh, these changes are a result of the women movement for decriminalization of abortion in Mexico. Social organization is the only way to make some change. It is important to continue with public manifestations, marches, rallies, and symbolic actions about reproductive freedom. The fight against patriarchal society should be permanent. I don't know if you have questions. <laughs> Thank you so much, Reito, uh, and congratulations again on that amazing victory. So we'll come back in after our next speaker with some questions. Um, so our next speaker is Emily Janakiram. She is a member of NYC for Abortion Rights. Emily is a writer and she recently helped win an important victory uh, with NYC for Abortion Rights uh, around clinic access in Brooklyn that I'm super excited to hear more about. Um, yeah, okay. Um, thank you everyone. And also to Jenny and um, Uvia for those wonderful presentations. Um, okay, so yeah, uh, as Lauren said, I'm mostly gonna be, I'll be talking about um, a recent victory we achieved um, with New York City for abortion rights, um, because you know, it's like so rare that we get to do that. Um, so the for the past five years, New York City for abortion rights has been counter protesting the archdiocese of New York's uh, witness for life campaign, um, and that's, uh, hitherto taken place in Manhattan, um, where they march from their church um, to the Planned Parenthood on Bleecker Street, um, and they, you know, harass patients entering the building. They hold the signs, um, you know, with the gory images and all of that, um, with, as a, you know, an attempt to like frighten and intimidate patients who are seeking abortions at the clinic. Um, however, this summer, and, you know, we feel that this is strongly timed along with um, the uh, upcoming Supreme Court case, as well as Texas, um, they've expanded that campaign to every borough in New York City, uh, including up in Brooklyn, which where they've never been before. Um, so we uh, decided to meet them in Brooklyn as well. Um, so this has been happening every second Saturday of the month um, since June. Um, and the procession is led by Fidelis Mojinski, who I'll talk more about later on, but who is notorious for breaking into abortion clinics across the country, which he's been doing for over 20 years. Um, and they even have these like, as escorts or they have like members dressed up like as clinic escorts, like wearing the Planned Parenthood vests that like the clinic 
volunteer escorts wear, you know, to try and like deceive people into talking to them. Um, so we, you know, show up there too. We pick it outside of the church. We're very loud. We have some even better signs of our own. Um, and we kind of just like sort of physically like walk in front of them backwards very slowly to prevent them from getting to the clinic so they can, you know, harass clin- uh, patients over there. Um, and, you know, it once took us like took them over an hour to get there. And this is like a seven block walk. Um, and every single time they always have like a very like large police escort, you know, and the police are not there helping patients enter the clinic or anything like that. They're there basically just to be the bodyguard of these like far right, um, anti's anti-choice people. Um, so when we last showed up on Saturday, October 9th, this past Saturday, um, a cop came from the church because um, he was, I guess they're like cop PR guy or whatever, um, to tell us that the procession had been suspended indefinitely. And, you know, we were like, OK, sure. Um, but we went to the church, we went to the clinic, we looked online and, yeah, um, they are no longer um, hosting that campaign of clinic harassment uh, in Brooklyn. Um, so, you know. We had made this small winnable victory like our our like tangible goal, but we didn't know how far we would get um, because last time we were out there uh, in August following a slew of hit pieces in the National Review about how we, New York City for abortion rights, are and I quote, the darkness overtaking New York City. Um, It's very metal, right? Uh, The NYPD strategic response group, which is notorious for their extreme militarization, their like bloated budget that they have to brutalize protesters, which we saw ample footage of during the um, Black Lives Matter protests last summer. And like, you know, the Fire Artem protests, which I don't know if you've been following in New York City, but anyway, they're they're awful. they showed up in full force. There was like like twice as many of them as there were of us um, and arrested two of our members for blocking pedestrian traffic, um, which, you know, we weren't doing anything that the antis weren't doing in all the five years that we've been doing this work, no matter how rowdy things have gotten. And it's never gotten physical, but no matter what, like the cops have never arrested anybody, including the antis, who are usually the ones actually doing more illegal and flagrant things than we are. Um, So we obviously expected that this was a kind of escalation, you know, by this like disgusting unholy alliance between the church and the police. Um, So we were like prepared for, you know, for it to get worse instead of for them to say, okay, we're calling it off, you know? Um, So we were stunned. It was great. Um, So how did this happen? Um, I think there are a couple of takeaways here. So first of all, we are not like we were not unobtrusive when we went out there. Um, we were extremely visible. We all had like t-shirts that said abortion is freedom. We made it very clear about what we were doing and why we were there. Um, you know, it's hard to miss a big, like a group of people yelling at like 8 a.m. in the morning on in Congress Street in Brooklyn. Um, and, uh, you know, we make cons- boldly and conspicuously claiming the street and the clinic space away from the antis. And that's an integral part of our strategy. And this is really the basis of clinic defense, which is um, taking back the right to the streets, taking back the right to the clinic and taking back our bodies from you know, the state, the right and the police. Um, but we also 
there, we kind of had more time to do this and build up momentum because their September 11th procession was canceled because they couldn't get their like police bodyguards out to like escort them because the police were needed for like September 11th things. Um, so we decided to build awareness in the neighborhood about what the church was doing and have the community put pressure on them because, you know, a lot of people are under the impression like people that aren't involved in this work, people that aren't on the left, that don't follow this stuff, that New York City is some kind of like liberal paradise and that there isn't even an abortion struggle to be won here. Um, so on several weekends, we set up a table with flyers and a petition right outside the church. We talked to passerby, we talked to community members, you know, people coming back from brunch or going to Trader Joe's or whatever. Um, and, you know, about what the church has been doing and why we were out there. We encouraged people to sign our pet petition and called the to call the church um, and ask for an end to this campaign. So, you know, we didn't really know what to expect when we were doing this, but we were totally overwhelmed by the response because everyone we talked to was so supportive. They were shocked that this was happening in their neighborhood. Um, people were lining up on the sidewalk to sign our petition, which is literally never something I've ever seen happen in this city ever. Um, you know, and more than that, people were telling us about you know, how they've had abortions at that Planned Parenthood, how they've had multiple abortions at that Planned Parenthood. Um, people got really emotional, like somebody cried hearing about the um, fake clinic escorts. Um, and um, there were people that had seen our comrade get arrested, like, like, because it happened in broad daylight in the middle of the street, and they were, you know, concerned and worried about her. Um, people were talking about, you know, oh, I've been going to that church my whole life. I can't believe that they're doing something like this. It's disgusting. I'm going to tell my friends. We're going to call, definitely. Um, and, you know, there were other things that went into this as well. Um, our tabling was happening right as uh, SB8 was passed, like right after it was passed and right before it was passed. So people, it was really easy for people to make the connection between the kind of clinic harassment that's happening here and the far right legislation that's being passed over there, especially when you point out that they have actually escalated in the past like five months, including the like um, over the top police response, you know? Um, and the seriousness of this was brought home when we explained who Fidel, Fidel Smushinsky, who I mentioned before, um, is and his long history of clinic invasion. So he got a star as a clinic invader in the 90s um, during the heyday of the notoriously aggressive, violent anti-choice movement, um, which, you know, Operation Rescue, as it was then called, and there was also Operation Save America and a couple of other ones, but that was the most notorious one. Um, you know, they were the ones that would physically blockade abortion clinics. They'd chain themselves to entrances. They'd assault escorts and clinic defenders. They'd scream invectives at patients entering the clinic. They'd stalk abortion providers and commit violence against them. They have been connected to the murders of like more than one abortion doctor. Um, and uh, Fidelis is like a central figure in the re sort of rebranded and repackaged 21st century version um, of Operation Rescue, which is Red Rose Rescue. Um, so this uh, consists of trespassing into the waiting rooms of abortion clinics across the country and harassing patients as they're waiting for their appointments. Um, they give the waiting patients red roses to kind of like wrap up what they're doing, this artificial pretension of love and concern. Um, they refuse to leave. Then the clinic will have to call the police. Um, and Fidelis 
what he loves to do is like to, like go go limp, you know, so that he can fit, he has to physically be like dragged out, and like the clinic has to like stop for the day, and it's like very traumatic for the patients who are in there, you know, many of whom are like already you know kind of on edge. Um, so Red Rose rescues have taken place all over the country, um, but not in New York yet. Uh, Fidelis was just arrested for participating in one in Pennsylvania. Um, he's spoken about how they're necessary, um, about they, the way the movement puts it is going to Calvary, um, and confronting the evil of abortion where it takes place. Um, I listened to a talk between Fidelis and another, like, a leading Catholic pro-life activist, pro-life activist, um, you know, kind of reminiscing fondly of the good old days of people chaining themselves to clinics and urging viewers to like risk arrest by participating in Red Rose rescues. So there is like a real push to return to like the radical, um, radical, sorry, they don't get to have that term, um, the aggressive like clinic invasion and harassment of the 90s. Um, you know, that was kind of like, tamped down a little bit by the FACE Act or the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances, uh, which, you know, makes it a felony to kind of like obstruct or blockade um, or interfere with the operations of a medical clinic, um, which had kind of, yeah, which had kind of put a damper on those tactics over the last few decades. But, and we can see as like anti-abortion legislation is ramping up across the country, so also are these tactics. Um, and, you know, this isn't the only example. Um, two summers ago in June 2020, a separate, so there's like two groups, there's like the archdiocese and like the like sort of Catholic aunties, and then there's the kind of um, evangelical aunties. Um, so this group, um, which included Flip Benham, Pre of operation previously of Operation Save America descended onto Manhattan's Planned Parenthood location on Bleecker Street, um, and that included this one like prominent anti-abortion activist, Bevelyn Beatty, who's like not really doing. She's like doing other weird grifts now, like with like the Proud Boys, and I don't know. It's like a whole thing, but um, she they descended. They like try. They were like physically trying to break into the clinic, like trying to pry the doors open. They slammed the. Um, uh, Planned Parenthood's uh, workers, like fingers in the door. They were like getting physical and pushing. We were literally like linking arms in front of the clinic as they were like pushing into us and trying to like break it open. And I'm like standing like next to a Planned Parenthood volunteer who had been at that clinic for like 30 years. And she was like, this is the first time this has happened since the 90s, you know? Um, so it's clear that the anti-abortion right is mobilizing around the strategy of being in the streets um, of the direct confrontational tactics that the liberals hope that the FACE Act and a sort of growing constellation of pro-choice nonprofits would like eradicate. Um, and, you know, this other evangelical group, Love Life, there's like so many of them now, um, like I've heard them in their videos say, people ask us, why don't you stay in church and pray? You know, because we are called as Christians to go to where the heart of the evil is, you know, where the abortion is taking place. So they are, and end quote. Um, so it's an attempt to sort of demonstrate and exert authority and control over the streets, over the clinics, over the bodies. You know, it's not just about prayer. Um, 
And when we made clear to the Cobble Hill neighborhood that there was a direct link between the street-based tactics of the right and the horrific legislation like SBA, um, as well as the like impending overturn of Roe v. Wade, which is like basically like the little shred that we have, you know, um, I believe I think that really galvanized people in the neighborhood, especially hearing about, you know, how the N- the NYPD's role in all of this as well. Right. Um, and I believe the church got something like 70 phone calls just from like one day of us being out there and talking to people. Um, and the cop that like came over and spoke to us that morning when he told us that it was like suspended indefinitely so said that the church was tired of the attention. Um, so obviously this is just like one tiny battle in a bigger war. Um, we can't win this fight just by tabling. Um, we're going to also have to, you know, calibrate and consider a strategy in the other boroughs, uh, where witness for life shows up because not every neighborhood is cobble Hill. Um, but what it does illustrate is that, you know, as they say, direct action gets the goods, um, confronting the right when they try to invade our streets and our clinics works, but more importantly, involving communities and building a base of ordinary people is essential to the struggle because mo- like so many people have had their lives impacted by abortion in some way. Like some, like for this, for this, it's like a very real struggle, you know? Um, and there is a real reason too why patterns of gentrification tend to break up communities and enforce atomization rather than um, keeping people together and keeping communities together and encouraging sharing and solidarity because it's easier for the dirty work of the capitalist state to be done this way. Um, Okay. So when I was tabling outside St. Paul's, I spoke to one woman about how, even though think people think this kind of thing doesn't happen in New York City because it's such a liberal bastion and whatever, whatever, um, the right recognizes New York as the abortion capital of the world, that we're like a demonic capital, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, that's why they're called to come here. And this woman said, like, yes, like we we are and we shouldn't apologize for it. Like we should welcome anybody freely here who wants an abortion. Um, and she's absolutely right. Um, abortion isn't a shameful thing that can only be negotiated in secret by lawmakers. It wasn't, as my co-panelists have said, um, it wasn't granted to us by a benevolent Supreme Court. It was won by a militant feminist movement that demanded an end to patriarchal control over people's bodies. Um, the right has appropriated these tactics. Um, they call what they do civil disobedience. Um, and uh, the pr- so-called pro-choice movement has mainly been taken over by a professional class of nonprofits. Um, while abortion is, is healthcare, it's not just a medical issue. It is an inherently political to fight for bodily autonomy and reproductive justice when those rights are under attack. Um, and when our bodies are seen as just instruments for producing additional workers, as Jenny mentioned earlier. So to defend abortion, we will need to follow the lead of the brave feminists we have seen in Mexico, um, in Ireland, in Poland, and in Argentina, an unapologetic movement that declares abortion is ours. Um, thank you. That was it. Thank you so much, Emily, for the on the ground reporting. I feel like um, things are very different or somewhat different in New York to my experience with clinic defense in Chicago. But I definitely related to what you said in terms of people in Chicago feel the same way that, you know, this is a this is a safe zone. Those of us in the movement are proud that Chicago is, you know, the abortion capital of the Midwest. But a lot of people don't necessarily know that these showdowns are happening like on a weekly basis in these, you know, liberal cities. 
Um, so I have a few questions for each of you. So I'm kind of going to do a run through and I'll let you all kind of weigh in. And if multiple people want to answer the same question, that's great too. Um, my first question is to Jenny. And you recently wrote for Jacobin that pressuring the Supreme Court isn't really the best tactic. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about the strategy you think would be needed, not only to defend abortion rights, but to actually win more? Yeah. Um, so I don't think that it's worth appealing to the Supreme Court to uphold our rights or for that matter, their precedents at this point, because they clearly don't care. Right. But I do think it's very important to question the legitimacy of the court and, um, this is a little controversial because I, I noticed that in the um, the messaging for the October 2nd march, we weren't supposed to criticize the court as illegitimate and undemocratic. Um, but it is both those things. Um, lifetime presidential appointments, um, basically they're remaking the law of the country. They've been doing it for the last 20 years um, with Citizens United and a host of other undemocratic decisions. Um, and But that's why I think we should focus right now on demanding that Congress do the will of the vast majority of people. Um, you know, at any point in the last uh, 50 years, they could have passed a, a bill uh, guaranteeing abortion rights and restricting the states from, from making all these laws, um, but they didn't. Um, but um, there is a bill in Congress, which was introduced since 2013, which just passed the House that um, is called the Women's Health Protection Act. It's not everything we want, but basically it would say that states can't restrict abortion rights in many of the ways that they're currently doing so. Um, of course, it won't go anywhere unless um, uh, the Democrats get rid of the filibuster rule in the Senate. And I think this is an important argument that we need to have right now. Um, I think, and this is true of folks in my group, um, we have thought that the Senate, which is obviously such an undemocratic body to begin with, is made more democratic because, by the filibuster because at least when, when the Democrats are in a minority, bad things can be prevented from happening. The problem with this as a strategy is that the Supreme Court has been making all kinds of reactionary laws. So they abolish limits on money in politics. They're allowing the states to destroy voting rights. They're limiting unions. Um, they're, uh, uh, and again and again, more and more things. And now abortion. But there's been no legislative response possible because um, of this thing that we call the filibuster rule, right? where basically 41 senators can nix anything, um, and those 41 senators can represent as little as, you know, 15% of the country, right? Um, they don't even need to make a speech anymore. They just basically say, oh, yes, we want to filibuster it, and that's it. it it's dead. So, um, and the filibuster was an anti-democratic measure from its inception, and it and it's been used to make sure anti-lynching laws weren't passed, to uh, get rid of civil rights laws. Um, so we're in this situation where there's a huge amount of, of people's legislation that, that the Democrats claim they can't get because of the filibuster, right? So um, including a lot of other things on the feminist uh, 
agenda, such as family leave, free childcare, um, you know, this huge $3.5 trillion investment package that Bernie has been, originally $6 trillion, that Bernie has been working to try to get past. Um, and so this is a perfect opportunity for us to demand it all. The Women's Health Protection Act and all of the rest, and to show that the main obstacle to it is the filibuster and the right-wing Democrats and um, you know we have to figure out which ones of them are actually are actually ob- obstructing this. It's not just mansion and cinema, right? Um, and um, <laughs> unite with everybody else who you know who wants all of these things. And they, this is key if we're going to hold back the forces that congealed around Trump in the Republican Party who are going for, as we see, as they try to replace election officials in in, uh, states around the country, we see they're doing nothing. They want a complete takeover of the country, right? So this is not something that feminists can fight alone. We have to work with a bunch of other forces to try to expand democracy in in the US. And this is a great opportunity for us to make the demand to get rid of the filibuster and and do all the other things. So so I think that's that's kind of I think where we need to be going. All right, I'm I'm pretty convinced that the filibuster is not democratic anymore. Like in my head I feel like I've always thought that well wouldn't it be great if like progressive Democrats use the filibuster for good things. Of course, that generally hasn't happened. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think this is uh, this strategy is something that we need to be uh, talking about a lot more in our different organizations. Um, so my next- stop the Republicans when they get back in of ending it, and you know that's exactly what they're gonna do. That's exactly how this party is sounding right now, the Republicans. So. So, you know, the whole idea, oh, we must preserve it because when they get back in, you know, they'll be restrained by it. That's that's not a good argument. Yeah, no, that ma- that makes a lot of sense to me. So so thank you for putting that out there. Um, my next question is for Yuvia. Um, so something that um, I'm really interested in is the fact that um, you're not a single issue activist. Uh, you mentioned that you were involved in exposing the femicides and gender violence in Juarez. Um, in the United States, it really feels like our movements against sexual assault and the abortion rights movement are mostly separate. Um, how have activists in Mexico made that connection that you know the the right to control your reproduction is connected to our rights to be free from violence, uh, free from assault? Uh, Well, the context here in Mexico is, it it is what um, facilitates that because uh, we live in a country where we have 10 femicides a day. And also we have a lot of uh, sexual abuse uh, cases of girls and and little boys also. Uh, That's why it's easier because when you are fighting in the streets, you easily uh, get to these problems. Even though if you start um, in the first place with... uh, the abortion issue, which is something that all the 
feminist uh, groups that are different because there are radical socialist feminist uh, liberal feminist but the abortion is something that we are uh, like um, we are in the same we 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 want the same uh, of that <laughs> topic but if you start also um, getting involved in the fight against femicide you can um know a lot of cases where little i mean girls 16 year old girls were forced to to uh, get an abortion or to have the baby and give them give him to the to the people who have her prostituting the pro prostituting her So it's it, it's very common here. It's because of the context, because you in United States, I don't know what I don't know, but I don't think think uh, I, you have the same problem as we are. Uh, I mean the the severe problem that we have here uh, of violence against women. Yeah, thank you so much um, for kind of connecting that. I mean, we had the Me Too movement that started a few years ago, and I think definitely around helped fuel the massive women's march protests around Trump's inauguration, um, some of the horrifying comments that Trump had made um, that were highlighted during uh, his campaign. And then when he was elected, I think um, a lot of feminists, a lot of activists saw that that as a, as a clear mandate to uh, raise the issue of gender violence, abortion. Um, but it still largely feels like those are separate conversations in the United States. And, you know, I think we definitely need to bring those together. Um, so I think it seems that in, uh, in Mexico, as well as other parts of Latin America, the women's movements there, um, the like that context is there and it's a clear connection. Those conversations are really the same conversation. Um, I have a question for Emily. So um, NYC for abortion rights does not use the language of pro-choice. Uh, and why is that? Uh, yeah. Um, thank you for asking, Lauren. Um, so, yeah, we tend to not see this in the framework of pro-choice um, because First of all, pro-choice is this kind. Pro-choice is this kind of euphemistic, liberal framework that casts abortion as um, an individual issue. You know that um, all things are equal in this world, and you can just choose to have an abortion or to not have an abortion. Um, so, you know, in a in a world where so many of our choices are coerced by our material conditions, you know whether that is. Um, we don't feel like we can afford to have a child because of the conditions we live in, or we feel like we have to have this child because they've closed the last abortion clinic um, and we're afraid of our partner if they find out we get an abortion, or, um, you know, you're um, an indigenous woman or a black woman or a, a disabled woman who has sort of been like forcibly sterilized by the state as many, uh, many people were in previous generations, like 
pretty recently. Um, it's not a it's not a, a choice, you know. Um, so we kind of look at that this framework instead as reproductive justice, which was coined by Sister Song, um, uh, like a sort of collective of um, Black feminists. Um, and this uh, this framework. Uh, argue, like puts as its central point that you know one we sh- we have the right to have a child to not have a child and to raise the children that we do have in safe and sustainable communities um so thinking about it that way kind of brings the abortion struggle um in like it like connects the abortion struggle to the struggles that Jenny was talking about earlier. You know, um, the struggle for reproductive freedom is not independent of the struggle for like environmental justice. It's not independent of the struggle for housing. Um, we don't agree that um, uh, you know abortion is between a woman and her doctor, or because you know having and raising children is something that is if like that an entire community is involved with and it has effects on on everybody you know um but the costs and the uh labor of that is always is consistently just located onto one family or one person who um births and raises the child so in short um we reject like pro-choice framework for reproductive rights framework to conceive of this as you know it's not just about whether or not you can choose to have an abortion or not. It's the conditions, also the conditions under which you make that choice. And uh, I'll also open it up if anybody else wanted to address this. Uh, what are your thoughts on kind of the the language that has been used? And I think, I mean, it felt like on October 2nd, we had this National Day of Action um, in Chicago. I got to march with about 6,000 people. Um, it felt really good. That was the largest abortion rights protest I've ever attended, uh, really, that I've had the opportunity to attend. And a lot of people seem to recognize that like we need to use the word abortion. We should no longer shy away from that term. Um, do you all agree with that? Do you have thoughts to add? Yeah, I was very happy to see the the change. And I mean, I've been to many, many large abortion marches that were March for Women's Lives or this kind of uh, language. And And abortion was right in the title. I thought it was great. Um, so I think I want to circle back um, to something uh, several of you touched on in your responses, which is it sounds like we're all in agreement and we're all kind of recognizing that this is a moment that we need to link our fight. We need to link abortion rights and reproductive justice to other social movements, the climate movement, anti-racist struggles. What do you all think that looks like? Um, do you have any examples from your own organizing or how do you envision vision this um, taking place? Um, I think I, I can answer some of that. Sorry, I was like having a hard time unmuting myself. Um, yeah, I mean, the question of how it takes place is it's difficult. Like coalition, coalition work is always difficult, you know, um, I think as we've as we've all seen. But um, I think that has to do with um, like left unity and realizing that we have all of these struggles in common. Um, and that has to do with like, you know, an understanding of that, like abortion isn't like one thing that's like kind of siloed away, you know, um, something that I'm personally really interested in is in the link, the link between, uh, sex work activism and, uh, and the abortion struggle and also how that links to 
because those things are, I think, you know, in, inherently about um, bodily autonomy. They're about violence and they're also about pe- people's material conditions, you know, um, and the kind of tension between like cho- like choice and and coercion and how that much that exists within a capitalist framework. Like, um so I think that, you know, the sex work, sex work organizing is first of all about like the, like bodily autonomy. And it's about your rights as a, um, as a worker, but it's also about ending, you know, the control of, um, landlords. It's about ending the control of the police. It's about ending the control of like abusive, um, quote unquote, um, employers or what have you. That's like a really weird term for it. Um, but, uh, it's about like all kinds of different struggles that are not just localized in one thing. Um, I personally see the the sex work struggle and the abortion struggle as like inherently uh, linked. But I also think that, you know, um, housing is a big part of it, especially as we look at um, skyrocketing rents across the country, as we look at gentrification and the way that um destroys our ability to work together. Um, not only like the material effects of pricing people out of neighborhoods in which they've lived forever, um, but also like how that atomizes us and makes us distrust each other. Um, I think that, you know, there's something that we in, um, NYC for abortion rights say a lot, which is FTP is repro justice. Um, and that's like recognizing that the, the police as like the violent enforcers of capital uh, play a big role in um, keeping us like our bodies part of that capital. You know, um, I think that the connections between um, the cops, like basically just being an escort for the antis and not doing anything to help patients enter clinics safely um, and arresting pro-choice activists um, to, you know, the cops who harass and sexually assault sex workers under the guise of like safety and and preventing vice or you know however they like to think about themselves to the cops like tear gassing protest like water defenders and land defenders all of those struggles are linked because they're all the way that the state and capital employs cops to keep us from being free um i recently heard about a a group a new division of the nypd called called um, the Business District Revitalization Initiative. And um, if you think that sounds like they basically just roam around and harass homeless people, you are correct. That is literally what they do. Um, It's like a whole armed wing. It's like a whole wing of the NYPD who exists like now to just um, clean up certain neighborhoods and make them um, profitable for big businesses, um, or businesses or landlords or profitable in general. Um, and that, you know, we've seen how that translates into violence towards sex workers, how that translates into violence against, um, you know, marginalized people against immigrants. And all of that is like, these are all the people who also need healthcare. These are all the people who also get abortions. Like all of these struggles are united. Um, so that was like a really long and rambling response to that, um, as to how we do it. Um, it is difficult work. It is making connections with other leftist organizations. It is like a reorienting of your thinking. Um, and I hope we can get there. Um, yeah. That was- I thought that was really good. I had one um, additional thought, which is, I think it's it, the the struggle for um, universal health care in the United States. I mean, you know, we... We th- we think we're so great here. I mean, Mexico City has free free abortion 
Um, and we don't have that anywhere in the United States. Right. So, um, so that's still on the agenda. And I think, um, one, you know, we, uh, another historical lesson is that when we won Medicaid, when we won Medicare and Medicaid, but in particular in the Medicare fight, um, the, the, Federal funding was used to force hospitals to um, to desegregate racially, which at that time, you know, in the South in the mid '60s, that was a very significant um, victory. So I think that it's you know it would be great, you know, ideally we would have we would pass a national healthcare system that where the federal government basically forces states to provide full access to abortion and and birth control. So, um, that, you know, I think linking up with, with the, uh, the movement for Medicare for all and, and making, um, reproductive rights, uh, an, an integral part of that really is a selling point for a lot of young people who want some, you know, reproductive rights. It's not, um, it's actually something that would get people excited about the movement for, for healthcare for all, as if we're not already pretty excited about the possibility of having free healthcare. Well, in Mexico, uh, the movement, uh, the women movement for abortion rights, it's very linked to uh, the cases of sexual abuse. We have in Mexico 10,000 cases of 11-year-old girls having babies each year. So it's very related because there's, there's a lot of ignorance here in this country about what is a rape. There's an, an imaginary stereotype that a rape is something violent uh, with something very violent, physically very violent, and it is not. Uh, for example, in the cases of, of girls in this year, in this age, it's more like um, persuasion. It's a per persuasion thing. It's like not uh, not visible, but we have this problem here in Mexico, this big problem of sexual abuse of, of little girls and having babies at uh, 10, 11, 12 year old. So here is very uh, related to that in Mexico, those those fights. And also, well, um, I wanted to say something about uh, to use the, the word abortion in the in the in the fight. Our main slogan is uh, sex, sex education for deciding, contraceptives for avoiding abortion, legal abortion for avoiding death. Yeah, that, what a slogan. And I don't know what the version of that slogan is yet for the context in the United States, but I mean, that seems like we're getting closer. So I'm a teacher and I mean, it definitely feels like the attacks on public education uh, is a form of an attack on childcare and is very much connected to the attacks on, you know, our right to have an abortion, our right to raise children in safe conditions, to be able to send children to a high quality school um, during the day. Um, but those are like, you know, it, it's hard to put those things in conversation. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot more to think about in terms of what what could the coalitions uh, that we have the potential to build right now uh, look like and who could be who could have a seat at those tables. Um, a question. So 
Um, I'm going to start kind of bringing in some questions from the chat. Um, one question that came up that I want to connect back is um, there's been some conversation in the chat about language we should use to describe um, our enemies. Basically, uh, Eugene asked, should we say forced birth instead of anti-choice? Um, and I kind of want to connect that to something that came up earlier where I really heard in uh, Jenny's presentation uh, the importance of understanding uh, that the re the root of the the root of the attacks on abortion are uh, economic are the fact that the ruling class profits off of a higher population and they want to they do not want working class people to be able to control our bodies. On the other hand, um, I'm hearing from Emily's presentation that. The face, uh, the people that we are face to face with in the streets are often religious bigots, right wing church groups, people using like religious or Christian language um, and types of arguments. Right. So I think that um, in the same way that people that there's kind of this misunderstanding or lack of understanding that abortion is being contested, even in liberal cities like Chicago and New York, um, it's kind of hard to understand that, like, um, it feels like, wow, these silly kind of ridiculous bigots with um, gory signs, those are that's our enemy, right? That's who's taking our rights away. And I think it has been harder to kind of make that connection of like, we have to fight against the um, we have to fight against the clinic harassment and the clinic violence while also having this larger understanding of why abortion is under attack. So I'd be curious how you all think we could uh, how do you see who our enemies are? How would you describe um, what we're up against? Um, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and, um, I, uh, I would also love to hear Jenny talk about that too. Um, but I'm just going to say this before I forget it. Um, I personally would have been wondering a lot about how the link between, um, the ruling class and like trickles down to the right wingers we see on the streets happens. Um, my bet is that if, because a lot of these groups that um, fund these things and show up there are like either nonprofits, like they have nonprofit status, like Love Life has nonprofit status. I believe at the Well Ministries, that's Bevelin's group has nonprofit status. The Catholic Church is the Catholic Church, obviously. Um, like there is obviously um, like money and resources being spent on, um, you know, funding these groups, um, mobilizing people. Um, there's like advertising campaigns and marketing campaigns that draw people to them. They do base building in a lot of different neighborhoods. Um, and you know, they're good at it. Like they are, you know, um, I don't know if y'all saw this like thing that kind of dropped on Twitter of like, this, I mean, this, it's been kind of like a growing thing we've seen of, of, of the, um, forced birthers, the anti-choicers. I mean, you're right. Forced birth is better language than anti-choice, but anti-choice is easier to say. The, anyway, the forced birthers, um, uh, uh, using co-opting this like social justice rhetoric of black babies matter. Um, uh, what about women in the womb? Um, stuff like that. Um, and uh, now they're kind of going full throttle with it. So there's like this new group that like, came out and they released this like very slickly produced video, like, you know, saying like, oh, I'm a 
I'm trans, I'm gay, I'm black, I'm Muslim, I'm whatever, and we're all against abortion. Um, and using like terminology like the abortion industrial complex um, and, uh, you know, advertising themselves as like liberal, atheist, um, pro-BIPOC, whatever that means. Um, and, you know, how they have this like they released like a press release to Fox News talking about how they have this like campaign of going on TikTok and going on Instagram and recruiting young people by using that messaging. Like on one hand, I'm like, okay, you guys are like kind of embarrassing because it's like so clear how astroturfed you are. But also it's like, it's like a little scary too. I think this like, you know, this feeds into a whole thing about how like when they say, um, you know, we don't have a culture like, what does it say? Like, our culture does not value life. Like, I feel like, you know, that's a true statement. Our culture does not value life because we have a capitalist society and capitalism does not value life. Capitalism values profits. But anyway, that's not part of the question. The question is, how is this happening? And I think it is like an extremely well-funded machine with very slick talking points that's very good at recruiting young people that knows how to use TikTok, unlike myself. Um, and, uh, you know, they're like catching on to like the kinds of language they need to do to tap into people's fears about like the this horrible world that we live in, you know? Um, so if you can say you're like pro BIPOC and babies lives, excuse me, black babies lives matter to kind of obscure like what, you know, your real agenda is. And I'm sure most of the people like we see out there, if I talk to them about like, aha, you just want to make sure that we're carrying out social reproduction. I know what you're about. Like they would have no idea what I was talking about, you know? Um, but yeah, my, okay. In short, my answer is like money and very slick messaging and able, being able to tap into people's fears that are very, very real about like how bad things are because we don't have like the people that are arguing like for abortion rights are like not doing anything to make our lives better. Okay. That's, that was it. That was my answer. Yeah, I can just quickly go. I mean, um, the, throughout the ages, right. The, the powerful have wanted, uh, to, to control our reproduction and in various ways. And, and so the Catholic church has been a big part of that for, for in the history of Europe and the United States, um, and so so first of all, this religion they tag a lot of tax free money is going is going into this right from people's tithes, um, but then there are also um, right wing forces like like the various foundations funded by Coke Industries and the and the wealth made there uh, that go directly into these these anti abortion. Um, activities. So, so it's very much, I mean, it's always been, you know, the, 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 the idea of that, that we shouldn't have control of our reproduction has always been mobilized through religion. Um, so, um, but, and then, and, and then the right has always tried to cloak the anti-abortion agenda as concern for black people, right? Um, Sister Song has called this out on multiple occasions. Um, there they uh this right wing group put up billboards in black communities including in Atlanta claiming that that abortion was anti black genocide um but in fact it's actually there's good evidence that um the right would like to deny abortions specifically to white people to get the white birth rate up um 
So the point is everyone needs to have the ability to get abortion when they need it, free of coercion. Um, you know, and right now the the main the main obstacle is is cost um, in in most places. Um, obviously, in Texas, there's more than more than cost, but cost has been the the giant obstacle. We have not managed to get rid of that obstacle. So that I think is is also a key thing to to note in this. Yeah, no, thank you. I didn't. Um, I thought uh, you guys addressed exactly kind of what I was uh, what I was getting at with that question. Um, and I mean, I think that in terms of like the next uh, some of like the next slogans or like language we could be using. I mean, I do think that uh, the slogan free abortion on demand, I mean, it still rings true. Like if it's not free um, and, you know, while we are saying we want to move away from the pro-choice language, I mean, how could anybody ever make choices about, uh, you know, their own health care if they can't afford it? Um, so I have um I have one more question and then I think I want to wrap up with a question um, from the chat. Um, but it does seem like um, there is a gro- it, it, it seems like there's a growing movement of uh, progressive pro-lifers or even people calling themselves feminist pro-lifers. Um, how do you think we should respond to that? Um, and I heard, you know, you both kind of mentioned that you're already encountering this. Um, yeah, I think the, you know, I think, um, moving away from the pro-choice framework and towards the reproductive justice framework is like the correct way to approach that. Right. Because when you see like, quote unquote, pro-life feminists who say things like, um, you know, uh, women, cause they never use gender neutral language, but you know, pregnant people are like being coerced into having abortions, um, because our society does not value life. The response to that, like that, like they're tapping into a very real fear. You know what I mean? That's like, Oh, like people have to like donate plasma to afford their rent. No, that's not a culture that values life, you know, but like the 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 follow to that is not so we should strip reproductive rights away from everybody. The the follow to that is like we need to fight for um an anti-capitalist socialist future where all of our where we take our material our material needs are rights, you know what I mean? How, like housing and healthcare um and gender equality are all rights that we have like that is what we're fighting for. We're not just fighting for like the right to make choices. We're fighting for our full freedom. You know, there is no like, there is no way to like fix these problems that they identify by banning abortion. You know, it simply doesn't follow. Um, and I think we need a movement that offers those things, you know, not like the kind of tepid, like choice liberalism that we have now that's like, oh, well, you know, it's your choice if you like get pregnant and have a child and like that's entirely up to you. No health care for you. You know, like, what is that? Um, and uh, so, um, yeah, I think that's I think it's 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 about refo- refocusing how we view the abortion struggle, you know, and that it's a part of a bigger struggle like all of these great panelists have like said um up till now um 
there was something else I wanted to say, but oh yeah, because if you drill down into what what they go into, what they mean by that, it's always about they always then reveal like what they actually mean is that like yeah, and you know like their attitudes about like what sex should be that you know we only want like this kind of relationship to exist between people, et cetera, et cetera. Like they sometimes they will like reveal their reactionary roots if you kind of prod them a little bit on it, but most of all, um, the sort of pro life like so-called secular pro-life feminists are are revealing like an anxiety that is an anxiety about capitalism Um, or they're they're tying, they're like kind of glomming onto like anxieties about capitalism and the responses that we should be tackling that, not people's right to have abortions. I just had one other thing. And I think that you know, there are there are a lot of reasons that people who want kids can't have them. Um, and they are, as as Emily pointed out, all related to the you know, the ridiculous um lack of provision for for family life and and just life in general that we have in the United States. So um so, so when we tie abortion rights to the rights for to all of these other things, paid family leave, child care, health care, um, then, you know, we sort of take away their argument. And and one of the things that we've been arguing is, look, the the right to abortion is the right to strike against bad reproductive working conditions. And in fact, the fact that our birth rate is so low is causing the capitalist class to seriously consider childcare for the first time in 50 years. So, so actually it's working, right? That, that we are not willing to have kids under these circumstances. It's, it's actually working to, to make our, our conditions better. If we didn't have the right to abortion anywhere in the United States, then they would be able to completely drop that and just coerce us, which is basically what they've been doing in Texas. No, absolutely. And I think that I, um, you know, I watched a uh, Vice News had a uh, really shocking video about the reality on the ground in Texas. And, you know, they covered um, the experiences of patients and providers who were basically uh, being forced to tell their patients that I'm sorry, like you, uh, your pregnancy test is positive, but I can't offer you services here. You're going to have to go to Oklahoma uh, was really terrifying. And then they basically um, talked to some of the antis um, who were mostly young women going door to door in pink shirts, talking about why they are against abortion and why we need this ban. Um, And I mean, it was really quite shocking to see this kind of like progressive, almost even feminist veneer uh, and like young women basically making these arguments is (laughs) pretty disturbing. Um, So as we wrap up, um, there were some questions in the chat coming back to this issue of like how to pressure Congress versus the Supreme Court and uh, overall strategy. So there's a question from Gina uh, who asked, um, you know, how would you respond to this concern that like, even if uh, we were able to focus on uh, congressional action being taken, wouldn't the Supreme Court inevitably then uh, potentially rule on the constitutionality of that? Yeah, I mean, it's quite the Supreme Court seems to be completely untethered from from any, uh, you know, any previous uh, uh, decisions. So it's quite possible that the Supreme Court would become an obstacle. On the other hand, 
if you look at it, it's very hard. It's one thing for them to argue that um, that abortion is in this, you know, that states uh, were not allowed, as they did in 1973, are not allowed to restrict abortion um, under the Constitution. It's quite a different thing to say the national legislature cannot make laws on this. They would probably use a states' rights argument. Um, but I think it would take us to the next step, which is, okay, so we, you know, the vast majority of people in the U.S. think that think that we should have abortion rights. And the legislature has just said that we have a law for, for abortion rights. And now you're going to then say, no, that's that's not okay, right? So I think we need to take that next step and really and really dig down on that. And then the other thing is, there are a ton of things that we can be doing. Um, you know, uh, my group, National Women's Liberation, is working, which has a big chapter in Florida, is working on a pledge. Um, I will help somebody get an abortion. I have helped somebody get an abortion um, since the legislature is trying to pass the same law as Texas. Um, we think thousands of people saying, I will break the law is very useful. And it will also make people feel like, oh, I'm not alone. There's plenty of out people out here who are resisting. Um, the other thing is freeing up the abortion pill. We've been pushing the FDA to get rid of the re restrictions around that. They're supposed to decide in December. Um, and then we think the next thing is, is pushing abortion pills over the counter. When we worked on getting the morning after pill, um, over the counter, which we won in 2003, we faxed thousands of pledges to the FDA, pledging that we would break the law and get by giving a friend the morning after pill, right? Um, which could also be a combination of normal birth control pills. Um, I don't see why we can't do that without with you know with the abortion pill. I was recently reading that the American College of uh, Obstetricians and Gynecologists is actually in favor of off labor off-label prescription of these drugs. So basically, um, you could have it in your cabinet just in case. Everyone should get a prescription, order the pills from Aid Access based in Australia. Uh, based in Austria, it's 110 bucks. Um, and then misoprostol, which is much cheaper, is 85% effective. Um, if you have pills, you can give them to a friend in need or somebody, anybody in need. Um, and the other thing about having those pills right there is that you can use them the moment you know that you're pregnant so you don't have to um, uh, wait around or dig around for the money and all of these things. Um, and so I just recommend that people really think about how to make this a, a, the facts on the ground change so that the legislature has to catch up with us, right? Um, PlanCPills.org is a great clearinghouse for how to get pills. Um, in some states, you can get pills now with uh, abortionondemand.org. Both of those websites are really great. Um, so I think there are like a lot of new things that we can do as well as looking at the old history. So at this time, uh, I want to thank all of our speakers uh, for joining us. Um, this has been an amazing conversation. I have so much that I want to bring back to uh, Chicago for abortion rights to think through what we can be doing as we head into the Supreme Court session. Um, thanks, everybody who joined us online and have a great night. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast 
and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.